I'm Susan. I'm Rodney. And this is The Darker Side of Things. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Darker Side of Things. Yeah. Now, hold on. Before you go any further, I want to say I'm, I'm going to be having uh, surgery on my legs on Wednesday to get some clots out. So I may or may not be um, out for a few weeks. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. You, would, you will be out for a while because you won't be able to get around like you did. So, well, hopefully his surgery will go well and... And the issues that he has with his legs um, will be better, and he he won't uh, he won't be hurting anymore. Right, I'll <laughs> be able to walk more than ten feet. <laughs> yeah, without crying. Oh, my legs hurt. Right. <laughs> well, um, other than that, there's really no other business that we need to discuss. Um, just that I, you know, give him my brother best wishes on his upcoming surgery and. You know, we'll say some prayers and stuff that everything goes well. And uh, today we do have a special guest. Um, we have his wife here, Evelyn. Hello. <laughs> I don't know if you heard her, but she said, hello. <laughs> um, so she came with uh, Rod today to uh, uh, listen to our podcast or whatever, uh, let us introduce it and and all of that good stuff. So um Today's episode, we are going to do on the Sauter children disappearance, and this is going to be a longer episode because there was a lot of information for this one. Uh, I will go ahead and begin. On um, December 24th, 1945, a fire broke out and destroyed the Sauter family residence in Fayetteville, West Virginia in the United States. At the time, living in the home were George Sauter, his wife Jenny, and nine of their 10 children. That's a big family. <laughs> I, I had one child. I, I can't even imagine having, you know, 10. So, well, yeah. Mom's mom and dad's mom. Well, for the times, I guess, too, the families were way larger than they are now. Yeah. Nowadays, having a, child, a family over five is unheard of. But right. back then, a family of 10 was actually kind of small. So... Um, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped the fire. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. The surviving family members believe all five of those children survived. The family never rebuilt, but instead made a memorial garden in dedication to the lost children. In the 1950s, the family started to doubt the children died, so they decided to put up a billboard on State Route 16, at the site with pictures of the missing children. They offered a reward for any information in hopes of bringing closure to the case. The billboard remained until shortly after the death of Jenny Sauter in 1989. To support their beliefs that the five children survived, they pointed out a number of unusual circumstances before and during the fire. The fire department claimed the fire was a result of electrical issues. However, George, the dad, stated that 
that could not be the case because he had recently had the home rewired and inspected. Both George and Jenny suspected arson and believed the children were taken by the Sicilian Mafia as a retaliation method to hurt the Sodders for George's outspoken views of the fascist government of his native Italy. So that's a very real possibility. Yeah, well, it could have been that the sheriff or whoever you said said that it was for electricity. It could have been because he was afraid of the mafia. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And that actually plays in a little later, not to jump ahead or whatever, but right. yeah, there's a lot of sticky little questions in here that's like, mm, what? Yeah. yeah, so. The state and federal investigations resulted in no new leads, but during the 60s, the family did receive a letter with a picture they believed to be one of the boys as an adult. The last surviving daughter and her grandchildren continued to publicize the case in the media and online. So here's some background to the case. George Sauter, both Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy, or he was born, I'm sorry, it says both, typo. He was born Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy. In- I've been to Sardinia. Oh, have you? When- I was stationed there. Oh, wow. Really? In La Maddalena, Sardinia, Italy. Oh, was it nice there? Yeah, it was wanted- really, it was your typical Italian that looked I mean, it was... It just looked Italian. Yeah. It's Italian. It's Italian. (laughs) I've always wanted to go to Italy. I've never had an opportunity. We'll be going to Germany this Christmas, but yeah. Everything closed down at lunchtime, and that was your big meal of the day on the island of of, uh, Lombardlania. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I hear... Um, as far as uh, the the meals, how they're scattered out through you know out the day, our big in here in America, the big meal is is uh, the evening time. Yeah. Yes, but the big meal um, in other places. So I guess we're the oddity um, is the lunch meal. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. Anyway, he was born in Sardinia, Italy, in eighteen six or eighteen ninety five. He and his brother immigrated. <clears throat> pardon me to the United States 13 years later. So he was only 13 years old when he came to the America. Wow. The dad of the Sauter kid? George Sauter, yeah. He was 13 years old when he immigrated. Wow. The brother returned to Italy once they cleared customs at Ellis Island. See? And that ties back to the um, melting pot <laughs> that we were talking about. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they it's uh Ellis Island. That's that's in New York, right? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's like one of those it's a islands. Port. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um George remained in the US and never talked about why he left Italy in the first place. So he was 13 years old and he was by, there by himself. How in the world did he It was back in the day. Yeah, but you really didn't have that much to worry about like today if you Step outside, you're afraid you're going to get killed or something. Yeah. Well, it it wasn't like that back then. Hmm. Unless he was being protected by somebody. Well, the the Irish had major issues because they felt that they were 
true foreigners, although we're yeah. Irish, and I'm completely okay with being Irish, so anybody... And being a foreigner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, he found work on the railroads, carrying water to the workers in Pennsylvania. A few years later, he took on a more permanent occupation as a drive-in smithers in West Virginia. He later started his own business, hauling dirt, to construction sites, then later changed to hauling coal that was mined in the area. Jenny Capriani, the daughter of a storekeeper in Smithers, also immigrated to the U.S. when she was a child. She went on to become Georgia's wife. Yay! Yay! They settled in the town of Fayetteville. That uh, had a large uh, Italian immigration population. They lived in a two-story timber frame house about two miles north of town. George's business was successful and were one of the most respected middle-class families around. One of the local uh, officials said that um, the, the, the family, they were well-rounded, they were well-respected, and overall, they were just liked really well. Okay. So George, however, <laughs> was outspoken and wasn't afraid to speak his mind on issues he felt strongly about. Sounds like you. Yes, it does. And I get myself in trouble quite a lot, especially at work, and I need to work on that. He wasn't afraid to speak his mind on issues and that he felt very strongly about and uh, would alienate some people uh, from him because of it. They, they just didn't want to have anything to do with him because he was so outspoken. Um, particularly his opposition to uh, Italian dictator at the time, Benito Mussolini, which led, the, uh, which led to some strong arguments in the Italy, Italian community. So apparently there, I guess there were a side that liked Mussolini and then a side that didn't like Mussolini. So yeah, I didn't care for Mussolini anyway. Um, Sylvia, the last of the Sauter children, was born in 1942. By then, their second oldest son, Joe, who was 21 at the time, had left to serve in the military during World War II. One year later, Mussolini was forced to step down as leader and then executed. No, I shouldn't do that. That's, that's not... Well, he wasn't very good hands so yeah i know he he helped uh hitler if i'm not mistaken yes so yeah um george of course had an opinion about that and drew some hard feelings in october 1945 a life insurance salesman visited the home and after being rejected warned george that his house quote would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed end quote it's a pretty strong statement to make yeah, why? Just because he didn't want to buy his insurance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and apparently, I guess this guy was uh, Italian, too, and he was a supporter of Mussolini. So that statement was made and claimed it all on the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. So, yeah. Another visitor to the house who was supposedly looking for work came around to the back of the house where George was and remarked that a pair of fuse boxes would, quote, cause a fire someday, end quote. So you see where this is going? So, yes. yeah, sabotage or, you know, whatever. George was puzzled by the remarks because he had just had the home, the home rewired due to the uh, 
installation of an electric stove and the electric company said everything was great. It was okay. Everything was fine. Um, A few weeks before Christmas, George's oldest son had noticed an unusual car parked along the main highway through town. And those inside were watching the Sodder children as they returned home from school. Christmas Eve, 1945, the house fire. The family celebrated the holiday on Christmas Eve in 1945. The oldest daughter, Marion, who was 19 at the time, had been working at the dime store in town and surprised the younger kids with presents. They were so excited and asked if they could stay up later. Jenny, the mom, told the the kids that they could at 10 p.m. so long as the two oldest boys were still awake and that Maurice, who was 14, and Louis, who was 9, remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. George and the two oldest boys, John, who was 22, and George Jr., who was 16, were already asleep. After reminding the children of the remaining chores, Jenny took Sylvia, who was two at the time, upstairs with her. Uh, They went to bed together. At 12.30 a.m., the phone rang. Jenny woke, went downstairs, and answered. The caller, a woman, asked for someone that uh, Jenny didn't know, and Jenny didn't recognize the woman's voice and told her she had the wrong number. But not for noticing that uh, the woman had the, some weird laughter. And uh, she also heard the clinking of glasses and stuff in the background. Then she hung up and went back to bed. She noticed as she returned that some of the lights were on and the curtains weren't closed, which is something the children normally do when they, uh, when they stayed up later uh, than their parents did. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed the other children had gone upstairs to bed. She closed the curtains and turned off the lights, then headed back upstairs to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny awoke to the sound of something hitting the roof and a loud bang and a rolling noise like it was rolling off of the roof. Hearing nothing else, she fell back to sleep. A half hour later, she woke up again smelling smoke. She got up and noticed the room George used for an office was on fire around where the fuse box was. She woke George, and he then woke his older sons. Both parents, along with Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., all escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children in the upstairs because they couldn't get up there due to the fire blocking the stairway. John, during his first police interview, stated he went up to uh, wake his siblings, but later changed that uh, and said that he never actually went up there, nor did he see them. Efforts to get the remaining kids in the house proved to be very complicated. The phone didn't work, so Marion had to run to the neighbors to call the fire department. A passerby uh, had also seen the flames and called the fire department as well from a nearby tavern. They also couldn't reach the operator um, because, uh, as it turned out, the phone there was broken at the bar, I guess. Either the neighbor of the passerby was finally able to get in touch with the fire department from another phone. uh, Oh, finally, the neighbor or the passerby was able to get in touch with the fire department um, from a different phone uh, in the center of town. George, barefoot, attempted to climb the home's outside wall and broke a window to try to get in, and he cut his arm in the process. He and his sons were going to use the ladder to get to to the attic, but that ladder was nowhere to be found. It was normally kept resting against the house, but it wasn't there. 
The water bucket that could have been used was frozen solid to the ground. The, uh, then George tried to use two of his trucks to pull up close to the house and use those to climb, but neither truck would work despite having been perfectly fine the day before. So this is all real fishy. I mean, everything that's been said so far, I'm like, yeah, something's up. Those, Especially when she went downstairs, none of the kids were down there except for the one daughter who was already asleep. That tells me that somebody came into the house and took the kids before they even went upstairs to bed. So, yeah. Anyway, frustrated, the surviving family had to stand and watch the house burn down. So where was the mother and father? The the mom, the dad, the oldest daughter, and John and George Jr., and then Sylvia, of course. Those four kids were the only ones to escape. So they were all outside in the front watching the house burn down. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they stood there and watched the house collapse over the next 45 minutes. So I can't even imagine standing there not being able to go in and help my kids. Right. Yeah. That just must have been devastating. Yeah. I I don't even want to think about that. That's especially fire. And they didn't hear any screams or anything. No. Yeah. No, they didn't hear any screams or nothing. I mean, they couldn't. Yeah. That's fishy, too, that they couldn't hear any screaming, you know, coming from the house. Um, They assumed that the other children died in the fire, obviously. The fire department didn't arrive until later that morning due to low manpower because of the war and relying on other firefighters to call each other. Chief F.J. Morris said the slow response was further delayed because he couldn't drive the fire truck and had to wait for someone who could drive it. Now, to me, that's just crazy. Fire chief who can't drive the fire truck. Yes. How, How on earth did he become chief? Yeah. Yeah, you can't drive the truck. You can't operate the truck. <laughs> sometimes it is. Sometimes it is who you know. Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of the firefighters was Jenny's brother. And still, he could do little but look through the ashes that was left in the basement of the home. By 10 a.m., Morris told the family they hadn't found any bones or anything like that, as would be expected if the children had perished in the fire. One account said they did find bones and internal organs, but they decided not to tell the family. And modern fire professionals have said that the search was hasty at best. Still, Morris believed the children had died in the fire and that it had been hot enough to burn the bodies entirely. And that that's possible. Yeah. That's possible. But even with uh, people who are cremated, there's still bones left. Not a lot, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't find anything. Uh, The aftermath of the whole shenanigan. Morris told George to leave the site as is so the state could conduct their investigation. But after four days of waiting, he couldn't take it anymore. And he converted or covered the site with dirt he had bulldozed and made a memorial to his children on the site. I don't think that he should have done that. Right. I understand why he did it, but I don't think... It made him look guilty of something that he was covering up. Yeah. That that could be, yeah. My thing was that, uh, first and foremost, by doing that, he just disrupted any kind of evidence that may or may not have been there. But 
you're exactly right. I mean, you see a guy he bulldozes his uh, yard to cover up a fire. Uh, first thing that comes to your mind is, dude, what uh, did you do something? Is that why you did that? Right. Yeah. So the local coroner uh, convened in an inquest and the next day held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was the man who threatened George that his house would burn down and his children destroyed for his anti-Mussolini remarks. So that dude was allowed on the inquest. He was allowed to sit there and say whether or not this happened or that happened. Right. So it was it was over before it started. Exactly. They had no chance even from the get go. Um, death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. And this happened at Christmas, too. That's just. Yeah. The local paper first reported that all five bodies were recovered, but then later said only one part, one body was found. George and Jenny were so devastated they couldn't attend the funeral held on January 2nd, 1946, but the living children did. The family questions about the official account. They, they question everything. So not long after the Sodders began to question the official findings about the fire, they wondered how it could have been uh, caused by an, an electrical problem. They said their Christmas lights had remained on throughout the early stages of the fire. Um, when the power should have gone out. Um, They also stated that the ladder they tried to use uh, but couldn't find the night of the fire was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. The telephone repairman said the phone lines hadn't burned either as originally thought, but they had been cut by someone who climbed 14 feet up the pole in order to do so. A man in the area had been stealing a, um, stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was found and arrested. He admitted to the theft, thinking it was a power line, but denied any involvement uh, with the fire. No record identifying the suspect exists and no explanation as to why he would want to cut, you know, any utility lines to the Sauter's house has never been explained. And what a block, I know you're probably thinking this, what's a block and tackle? It's a rigged pulley system designed to lift heavy loads. Because I didn't know what it was, so I had to look it up. (laughs) I'm like, what the heck is a block and tackle? (laughs) Um, Jenny said in 1968 that had he cut the power line, she and her husband, along uh, with the other four children, wouldn't have been able to make it out of the house. She also had trouble accepting Morris's explanation that the five children who perished, their bodies were completely burned in the fire. She recalled that many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. Now, I agree with her there, because in order for bone to burn, it has to be extremely hot. And in order to be that hot, you would think that metal would have completely burnt away. Oh, or melted. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Plastic would have burned. It would have melted to liquid. Yeah. Melt, I mean, if the fire was that hot, because it has to be extremely hot to completely burn the bones. Yeah. So uh, she compared the results with a similar case that read around the same time, killing seven, that skeletal remains were recovered of all the victims. She experimented herself on animal bones to compare 
and none were ever completely consumed by the fire. A worker from a crematorium she contacted told her that even burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, human bones would still be present, far longer and hotter than the house fire had been. There's also the issue with the trucks not working. George believed the trucks had been tampered with. However, one of his son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he believed George and his sons may have flooded the engines in their urgency to get to the children. Now, that's possible that that happened in their, uh, not excitement, but then in their urgency, right. you know, that because back then it was very easy to flood a vehicle to, mm-hmm. so where it wouldn't start. Next, we have the phone call to the home in the middle of the night. Some believe that is associated with the fire, but investigators tracked the lady down who made the call, and she said it was, in fact, a wrong number. So, And she did, had no part of what happened with the fire. So as spring approached, the sodders planted flowers in the soil that was bulldozed over the house remains, as they stated they would. Jenny tended to it faithfully and carefully for the rest of her life. However, developments in 1946 further confirmed the family's suspicion that the children were alive somewhere. Evidence emerged indicated that, indicating that the fire had been set intentionally and not an electrical fault. A bus driver passing through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he saw someone throwing balls of fire at the house, hence the sound on the roof. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, dark, green, hard rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. George recalled Jenny uh, telling the thumping she had heard coming from the roof that night before the fire and said it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade or some other type of device that would have been used in combat. The family believed the fire started on the roof, contrary to what the fire marshals concluded. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the Sauter children themselves. One woman said she saw the children in a car passing by as she watched the fire from the road. Another woman said she served them breakfast between Fayetteville and Charleston and said she also noticed a car in the parking lot with Florida license plates. The Sauters hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from a nearby town called Golly Bridge. Well, that's a name, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He informed the family, kind of sounds like big bone leg, doesn't it? <laughs> he informed the family, no offense, Kentucky. I love Kentucky. I think it's a gorgeous place. Um, he informed the family that the man who threatened George over his comments on Mussolini served on the jury that declared the fire an accident. He also told them that he learned of rumors that the fire Chief Morris found, at the fire, Chief Morris found a heart and packed it into a metal box, then burned it, or buried it, I'm sorry. Morris had apparently confessed to the local minister about this and told George. Tinsley and George confronted Morris about it, and he confirmed it. Morris agreed to show them where he had buried it, and they dug it up. They took what they found in the box to a local funeral director who, uh, after examining it, declared it to be a beef liver, so it wasn't human. And it was never exposed to any fire. So why would he do that? That just makes no sense. Well, how would it not be exposed to a fire? Was it in the refrigerator? I don't know. Why would he even do that in the first place? Yeah. Why would he take this liver just, I guess, to make these people think that, yes, the pe- the kids were there? Yeah, 
yeah, to make the to make the family think that yeah, the kids were in the fire, and I have this box, and you're not going to see it, but I have evidence they did die when in fact right. they did. Right. Anyway, more rumors circulated that Morris admitted the box didn't come from the fire. He had wanted the Sodders to find it in hopes that it would satisfy their need to find their missing children. Just what I said. So there was an excavation in 1949. George saw a photo of a group of girls in a uh, ballet magazine in New York and believed that one of the girls was his daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to the ballet school and demanded to see the girl but was refused because he was probably acting like a maniac. Yeah. I, that's my daughter. I want to see her. Yeah, yeah. He also tried to get the FBI involved in what he considered a kidnapping. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover himself answered his letter. Although I would like to quote, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation uh, investigative jurisdiction of this bureau, end quote. He also add, added that if the local authorities requested their assistance, he would assign agents to assist, but the local police and fire department refused that offer. Hmm, I wonder why. In 1949, George persuaded Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search of the site at the house. A very thorough search turned up artifacts, including a dictionary that had belonged to the children, and some coins. Several small bones were found and determined to be human vertebrae. The bone fragments were sent to a specialist, Marshall T. Newman, at the Smithsonian Institute. They were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae from the same person. Since the transverse, quote, this is in a quote, since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years, end quote. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still infused. Given this age range, it was not likely that these bones came from any of the missing children since the oldest missing boy was 14 at the time. The report did say, however, that sometimes the vertebra of a boy his age was sometimes advanced enough to appear to be at the lower end of the range. So uh, who, um, which one went to sleep first? It was the 16-year-old boy, right? Well, they don't know because nobody actually saw the boys go to sleep. Only John and George Jr. were asleep. Okay. And then they were woken up. So I guess they slept in a different room because the other five children slept in the attic. So they were on a different floor at the time. So they don't know when these when the other children went to bed. And because remember they stayed up later to play with their toys and stuff. Yeah, but wasn't John Jr. or whatever, wasn't he sixteen? Didn't you say he was sixteen? Uh let me go back here. Let me look at my notes. Um, he, he went to bed. Or was he 13? Or The oldest son was Joe. He was 21. And let's see. The oldest daughter, Marion, she was 19. Um, Maurice was 14 and Louis was 9. Okay. Yeah. 
George Jr. was 16. He was already asleep with yeah, that's yeah the okay. older son, John, uh, John, who was 22. So yep. those two were already asleep. Yeah. Yep. So let me, I lost my place. The let me get back here. Yeah. Yeah. The 14-year-old and 9-year-old were the two that were supposedly killed in the fire. New uh, Newman added the bone showed no signs of exposure to burns. So there you go. He also added that it was very strange. Those were the only bones found considering a wood fire with such a short duration would have left uh, full skeletons of all the children behind. So there you go. The report concluded that the bones were most likely from the dirt George had bulldozed to cover the site. And later, Tinsley reported, uh, Tinsley's report uh, supposedly confirmed the bones came from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but couldn't explain how they'd been taken there or how they got to the site in the first place. The Smithsonian returned the bones to George in September of 1949, and their current location is unknown. The investigation attracted national attention, including the West Virginia Legislature, which held two hearings on the case in 1950. Unfortunately, the governor at the time, Oki L. Patterson, <laughs> I'm an Oki from Muskogee. Okay, anyway, the state, and I also like Oklahoma. It's also a beautiful state. So, no, no offense to anybody. Um, I better watch myself before I get myself in trouble. Um, the state police superintendent, W.E. Burchett, informed the Sodders the case was hopeless and closed it uh, at the state level. The FBI at the time decided to take on the case, stating it could possibly be classified as interstate kidnapping. But the results of that investigation after two years proved fruitless. Regardless of the FBI and state dropping the case, the Sodders continued to search and never gave up hope. They had flyers printed up and offered a $5,000 reward for any information, then later doubled that amount in hopes of getting anything they could use to even settle one of the missing children's cases. In 1952, the family put up a billboard at the side of the home and another along U.S. Route 60 near Anstead, displaying the missing children. It would eventually become a landmark throughout Fayetteville and remains there today. Soon after those billboards went up, a woman came forward, Ida Crutchfield, who ran a hotel in Charleston, claiming to have seen the children about one week after the fire. I do not remember the exact date, she said in a statement. The children came in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction. When she attempted to speak to the children, one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner, then turned and began speaking in Italian rapidly. The whole party immediately stopped talking. She said uh, they left the following morning. Today, investigators don't give much credence to her claim because the woman hadn't seen the photos of the children until two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. George followed up on leads himself in person, traveling to those areas and speaking directly to them. A woman in St. Louis, Missouri, claimed Martha was being held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claims he overheard people talking of a house fire on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before, none of which came to anything. This poor man. 
I mean, he traveled all over trying to get his kids. Mm-hmm. And I would have probably done the same thing. You know, his desperation, I just can't even imagine. When George found out that a relative of Jenny's that lived in Florida had children that resembled his own, he made them prove to him that those kids weren't his. That's how desperate he was. His own relative. Well, his wife's relatives. He wasn't, yeah. Yeah. This poor man, he tried so hard to find his children. Uh, I feel so sorry for him and his entire family. I can't even begin to imagine how that must feel to be without your kids. I just can't even imagine. My son doesn't, I mean, he's out on his own and everything, but even just not even talking to him in a week or whatever, and, you know, my heart starts to get sad. (laughs) I have to reach out. Reach out and touch. In 1967, George went on uh, another hunt to the Houston area. A woman there wrote a letter claiming that someone by the name of Lewis revealed to her one night after drinking too much. No. A woman is Louise. A woman there wrote a letter claiming that someone by the name of Lewis revealed to her one night after drinking too much his true identity. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. Unfortunately, George and his son-in-law were not able to speak with the woman. The police did locate the men, but they denied being George's two missing sons. Years later, the son-in-law said that he doubted. He doubts about the denial. Okay, wait a minute. Years later, the son-in-law said the doubts about the denial were always there for the rest of George's life. So George, I guess, believed that those two men were his sons, and they said they weren't. So that ate at him, I guess. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. The most credible evidence they received came in from a photographer later that same year. Jenny was checking the mail and saw a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man in his 30s, believed to be their lost son, Louis. The resemblance was striking, to say the least. On the back of the photo was written, quote, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35, end quote. Because of this photo, the family hired another private investigator. But he never reported back, and the Sodders were unable to locate him afterwards. Seems fishy to me. The picture was added to the billboard, but no published information because they were afraid that if this was Louie, he would be harmed. They also put an enlarged photo of the same picture over their fireplace. Bless their hearts. <laughs> that just that just got me. George Sodder passed away in 1969. Steer was born without ever knowing what happened to his children. That's just so sad. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, continued to seek answers. John, however, never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that his family should accept what happened and move on and move on with their lives. Well, how can they move on? There's no evidence that their children died in that fire. He was he just didn't want them to get hurt. He knew, I think he knew what happened. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that he may have known that they were taken, they were kidnapped or whatever, but yeah, they just, they never knew. So I can't say I blame them for 
right. searching and all of that. Um, when George passes, Jenny stayed in the family home. She had fencing put up around the home and added additional rooms. She wore black for the rest of her life to remain in mourning and tended the garden of the site where the former home stood. After her death in 1989, the family finally took down the billboard. The surviving Sauter children and their families continued to publicize the case, along with the older Fayetteville residents. They theorized that the Sicilian Mafia tried to extort money out of George and took the children until they got it. It's believed they may have been taken back to Italy. If the children did live, the family believes they haven't reached out to them to keep them safe. And that's that makes sense. But that's not to say that that's, you know, what happened. Sylvia, the youngest of the Sauter children, passed away in 2021. She was in the house the night of the fire and says that night is one of her earliest memories. She recalled to the Gazette Mail in 2013. She said her and her father would often stay up late and talk about what might have happened that night. She believed her her siblings did survive that night and assisted with efforts to find them and publicize the case. Her daughter said in 2006, Today the family's efforts include online forums such as websleuths.com in addition to media coverage. Due to the media coverage, some who have examined the case believe the children did die in 1945. George Bragg, a local author who wrote about the case in 2012 with a book entitled West Virginia's Unsolved Murders, believes the oldest son John was telling the truth when he said he physically tried to awaken his siblings before fleeing. He goes on to say that the conclusion may still not be correct. Logic tells you, this isn't a quote, logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always go by logic, end quote. There is so much weirdness behind this case that to find out the children actually did live wouldn't be shocking at all. Stranger things have happened, and it is plausible. I hate this happened to this family. To lose so many young children at once must have been devastating. I can't even begin to comprehend their their grief. So this is the end of the Sauter children disappearance. So what are your thoughts? I think I um, saw a documentary on the Sauter children or whatever. Really? And, or or a different family with the same type of circumstances mm-hmm. where a, a picture of a boy in like his early teens was sent to the mother and it supposedly would look just like the ones that survived in in her life in the fire and George the dad mm-hmm. went to Italy to try and find him and he couldn't find him and came back or yeah he mm-hmm. came back and died later but it was a, something like that mm. well i mean crazier things have happened i mean this stuff isn't there people do kidnap kids and then people think that they died or whatever and it turns out years later the kids reach out to their long lost family and it's like oh my gosh yeah we right. no we didn't die we were kidnapped you know so it's not unheard of that this couldn't actually happen yeah i thought it was like on forensic files if i'm not mistaken hmm. it's possible it's yeah. very possible 
So what are your thoughts on the um, in the uh, on the case audience? Um, do you think they lived? Do you think they died? What are your theories? You can send them all to us and we'd love to read them. And if enough information is received, we we may even revisit the case with an extended, you know, uh, additional information as far as, you know, look into what your theories are and so on and so forth. Uh, You can post your comments and and anything that you have, any questions, concerns, whatever, on our Facebook page at the Darker Side of Things podcast. Or you can email us your ideas and stories if you'd like to share um, at the Darker Side of Things, the number one at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. And until next week, avoid the rabbit holes. They're dark and they're deep. Yes. Yes. Bye. Bye. Bye.